our supplement that are also in the hymnal. But we had that hymn in the red hymnal and in the blue hymnal. It might even still be in the black hymnal. And we are going to get out the old Psalters and the Moravian Youth hymnals again someday soon. But anyway, but none of the hymnals had all the stanzas, and one of them had, for some unknown reason, changed the order of some verses. And I wasn't dogmatic on a lot of things with a supplement, but that was one. You have to go from the line, yonder is his tomb, to yonder is my peace, the grave of all my woes. Amen. Good to sing with you today the praises of our God. I want you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We've been taking, as we've somehow described it, a 30,000 foot overview of the book of Thessalonians in these late summer weeks, hopefully coming back in the fall, the next couple weeks to our studies in Romans. But today, coming to the closing part of 1 Thessalonians, I want to read in chapter 5 from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Well, amen. We trust again the Lord to add his own blessing to the public reading of his inspired word. Let's do bow our heads and our hearts again together. A gracious heavenly Father, it is a marvel, it is a precious testimony that we can say with a brother of long ago, I hear the words of love. I gaze upon the blood, I see the mighty sacrifice, and I have peace with God. Lord, give us such grace today to behold something of Christ even as we come to this portion that would have us look at the expression of his people in this world. Lord, let us glean from what is said to them, for truly it is said to us. And so give us help that we need today in opening your word. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 
As I said, today we come to the closing verses in this first epistle to the Thessalonians. And we've seen this church really as a remarkable church in several ways. It clearly was, we might say, an infant church because the time that had spanned between its founding and this letter being written to them was not a great period of time. We would say at a very brief period in a modern church planting context, I'm sure. But as we come to look at this people, Paul's attitude, his interaction with them. I say they were remarkable people in many ways. The evidences of grace were so clear, the apostles spoke of them as the beloved of God, certain of their election, because these evidences of grace were so great. Their testimony was spoken of throughout the region and beyond. Their grasp of truth and their sharing of that truth was a marked feature of their experience. They even had the mark of maturity. So we marvel again at that sixth verse of the opening chapter that they were joyful. They received the word in much affliction and joy of the Holy Ghost. That's just one of those to pause and dwell over often. It's usually when afflictions come that joy is waning. To have joy be expressed in afflictions. What a mark of maturity and of spiritual understanding. Well, we spoke in chapter 1 of what we've called basic Christianity. We reviewed that trio of graces, faith, hope, and love. But there was a trio of virtues that flowed from those graces that Paul emphasizes as he looks at these people. Well, if we spoke in chapter 1 of basic Christianity... What I want to do as we come to the closing verses of the book is to speak under the heading of basic church life. Most of this, we may comment upon this as we go along, but this is clearly addressed to the people as a body. There's individual application, but these verses speak of them as a body of believers, who and what they were and how they were function. And so I say basic church life will be a fitting heading for us today, and I just want to look at the verses we've read. Again, we're taking those 30,000 foot overviews, but just under these three headings leadership, fellowship, and worship. Leadership, fellowship, and worship. The first two verses that we've read, verses 12 and 13 are a very pointed reference in the New Testament. There certainly are others, and we may turn up one of those in a moment. But very pointed reference with regard to the topic of leadership. Now sadly, leadership is a topic that suffers much in our times. I put in my notes here a little parenthesis, in all times. I think preachers always have the tendency to talk about it's really bad now, and they've got to preach the sermon and convince people they need that sermon now, but... Well, it's been bad in other times. The needs have been there in other times. But leadership in our day has fallen on hard times because, well, the flesh corrupts everything. We can look, and the last generation has looked a lot at the flesh corrupting submission. When I grew up, I mean, you didn't get a week to go by without some reference to spiritual authority in a sermon. Submission, a theme. Well, the flesh corrupts submission. But the flesh also can corrupt leadership. And one of the problems and difficulties of our times is corruption on both sides. 
But yet again, this is common through history. Commentators speak even in looking at this passage about the the constant pendulum swing between clericalism and anti-clericalism. Now, clericalism is just clerics, church leaders, church officers, and in some churches, multiplied tiers of church officers overlording their people. And situations like that, whether it be in apostasy such as Rome, or even in more evangelical denominations where people were frustrated, a spirit of anti-clericalism can come up. Throw the bombs out, and don't put any new ones in. Let's, well, let's be brethren. I have to hold myself back here. It's a module I'll be doing later this fall in the seminary, but brethrenism. It is the system out of which dispensationalism came to the modern church, but you look at different representations of brethrenism, and I like to use a phrase, in brethrenism there's usually one man that's, quote, not in charge. Because in a vacuum of scripturally ordained leadership and checks and balances, force of personality can go a long way. Well, here is a biblical expression in basic church life of the role of leadership. It's clear the scriptures speak of leadership among the Lord's people. You have passages that describe the offices, passages that describe qualifications for the office, passages such as these that speak about the relationship between people and their officers. And so it is a God-ordained relationship. But I think we get confused at times when we think, well, let's use it in a wrong way. You see it in the roles of husbands and wives, very similarly in the roles of church leaders and laypersons. Leadership, remember. I'm getting used to teaching in seminary. You can give tests. You have to give tests. You have to grade tests. I can't give tests to you guys, but you should be working at least on memorizing this. Leadership. It's never the selfish privilege of forcing your ideas on other people. It's always the selfless responsibility of promoting God's ideas, God's word among all. And for these Thessalonians, here they are given charge. Paul says, we beseech you, brethren. This isn't just friendly advice, take it or leave it. This is the apostle giving instruction. And he speaks, I say, of leadership. Know them which labor among you. That's an interesting way to say it. Hebrews, we may turn it up in a moment, we may just reference it, but speaks about obeying them that have the rule over you. But here he says it in this way, know them. I think often of that. A relationship that exists between people that do know each other. There's confidence that is there. I mean, again, leaders are elected from among the people. That's part and parcel of leadership. And so to have the ability to know them 
to have confidence in them because those qualifications, their life and character held up against those marks of a Christian should be evident. And so the apostle, in giving the admonitions that follow, it flows out of a knowledge that exists between the people and their leaders. But how is leadership here described? He gives us three phrases to underscore those to whom the people are to know and to be in submission. Know them which labor among you. Commentators pause and emphasize here labor, hard work that exists among and by those that lead the flock of God. Those of you that are adults, you may remember a time when you were a child and then a youth and you just longed for adulthood when you could get out of the home and all responsibilities and having to do what other people say, that would be gone and you could just chart your own path and do what you wanted to do all the time. And then you became an adult. And man, did the responsibilities and the things you have to do that maybe you don't want to do and the people that come along and tell you you have to do them, all of a sudden you used to have two, now you have 200. So young people, you got it good. And when you're an adult, you're going to look back on your youth and say, I had it good. (laughs) My wife speaks about me. Now the word's going to escape me. It's one of those unprepared remarks. Nostalgia, that's the word. Uh, being nostalgic about those days. Well, thank God they were, they were good and happy days. But spiritual leadership then brings with it labor. And much of the labor is at times unseen. It's one thing when you can see a laborer building a house. You drive by it one day and you know there are no walls there. And the next day, wow, there's walls. There's a roof. Wow. You see evidence of that, but it's not easy in ministerial labor to one day see a wall that didn't used to be there. We believe by the grace of God, evidences of labor and fruitful labor is seen along the way, but it's, well, it's much like that description of Christianity that we've seen often of walking. There should be steady if at times unspectacular progress, but labor, those that work hard among you, they're calling upon them, perhaps as we would call upon children, to reckon upon the labors of the loving parent. And then he does speak secondly in the next phrase of those who are over you, in the Lord. And here's where leadership is called upon to remember all of the biblical descriptions of leadership to stay out of that realm of selfish privilege. Our Savior spoke to His disciples about being servant of all those that would lead. The very word itself, minister, that we often use of spiritual leadership in the church means service. And so this oversight, this leadership responsibility is from a position of servanthood. 
And yes, there are responsibilities that leaders must live up to. But yet submission and authority, well, they're part of life everywhere else. Why are we taken back when we see that it's part of life in the church among the people of God? Here's where I will ask you to turn with me to Hebrews. Hebrews 13. Just so we're understanding that this admonition about those that are the very idea of having somebody over us in the Lord isn't a fluke. Hebrews 13, both verse 7 and verse 17. Verse 7, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow. Verse 17, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. And then that's an interesting phrase. For that is unprofitable for you. And so here, oversight, and again elsewhere, the leaders are told not to take that oversight in a harsh way. Just as fathers are admonished in Scripture not to provoke their children to wrath, Spiritual leadership would be well admonished not to provoke their people to wrath. You read the pastorals about the responsibilities. We've read here in Hebrews of the accountability that leaders have for how they lead, for how they admonish or fail so to do. But the people are charged here to remember to know these that are over them in the Lord. To be able to rejoice in having spiritual authority. Again, not super saints, not cut of different cloth, just exemplary believers. That's what you find in the description of the office bearers and how they're to live and how they're to be recognized. And here, then to take that place to recognize the function. You think of that with a child in the home. I mean, this baby is born into the world. It won't survive without the leadership, the function of parents to feed it, to shelter it, to care for them, to instruct them along the way. Fire's hot, ice is cold. Water drowns. All those pieces of happy, necessary leadership. Well, the child is to obey the parent because they're the ones charged with those responsibilities. Not just some guy 20 miles away on the other side of town. Well, I better go see what he... These are the people that are taking care of me. Well, so it is in church leadership. These are ones that I'm to know that are charged with with caring for me. With providing for me in this corporate environment the means of grace that all of us need. And so let us not give in to the mindset of our culture that would cast off every instance of authority every 
expression of submission as somehow a bad or evil thing. These are parts of life. This is part of happiness. You know, we kind of have a a sin-cursed world without authority, without the expression, the teaching and enforcement of the law of God. Joy departs. Anarchy and misery come in. And here, Paul writing to this beloved congregation with regard to leadership. Know them. Know those that work hard among you, that are over you in the Lord, and thirdly, those that admonish you. Here's an ethical word. It's used often, it's used most often of correcting bad behavior. Admonishment. And so here, we as, again, those among the people of God, just as children in the home, to have admonishment, correcting behavior that's out of bounds. One commentary took the time to look at some of the comments on the the linguists, and they go through not only biblical usage, but Greek usage outside of the Bible, and show how the terms are used. And one of them pointed out that this term here for admonishment, again, an ethical word that's most often used of correcting bad behavior, added the footnote in there that admonishment, how this word plays out in its varied usages, is this correction without bitterness and without provoking. I thought of that phrase we've mentioned already about fathers not provoking their children to wrath. Well, here it is that the Thessalonians are told to hear admonishment because this would be coming from godly leadership without the response of bitterness or provoking to wrath. You see, within the church, as within a family, It should be a context of love. And here that follows out in these verses. To esteem them, verse 13, very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Love and peace. That's the context of this oversight. And just as in a family, where love and peace, where acceptance, where comforts are constant and plentiful when admonishment and correction come in that context they're far more effective they can be appreciated instead of hated here I say Paul closes out the letter this basic church life he gives these rapid fire admonitions with regard to leadership in the church. Secondly, we read in this section as what we've described as fellowship. Verses 14 and 15. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak. I use the word fellowship here because I think what Paul gives us here is in the context of what we read in the Old Testament of iron sharpening iron. I think we come with an understanding here. These 
qualities, these interactions that are listed, which we look at in a moment, are general admonitions. When we come into specific areas of correction, well, those are things that we need to leave to leadership. Because very often, leaders will know more of a situation than just the rank and file. And it's almost as if the, 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 the more serious the issue or problem becomes, the more that's going to be true or should be true. And so for the rank and file in the congregation to be, in a sense, hesitant on some matters, and of course, when we come to matters of our own opinions where there's wide room scripturally for somebody not to share that opinion, and that's where we need a lot of grace and wisdom. But here I say within the fellowship, there's a threefold reference here, three actually types of people within the body that are held forth and how to deal with them. We read of that first one, warn them that are unruly. The word unruly is a military term. It is used in a description of somebody that marched out of order, didn't stay in line. And so here, this disorderliness, and most commentators suggest based on the context of First and Second Thessalonians, that the disorderliness that was at least prevalent or present in Thessalonica was a disorderliness of being idle. There were some that were prophecy buffs and they had the date set or so they thought and they were pulling back and uh, waiting on the Lord to return and neglecting necessary duties and showing up at the other people's house for dinner every night. You know, Monday night, I know what these people have, we'll go over there. Well, that's wrong. And so, a warning of the idol, and this actually is the same word of admonishment above, here, to be able to charge one that is walking out of step in this way. Secondly, there's a group that are called the timid, or in the authorized version, the the feeble-minded. Here the admonition is encourage the timid. You think even of that aspect of coexisting in the church, of encouragement, where encouragement is what is needed and what is the best corrective. The timid here, many suggest that, again, it was perhaps this anxiety among some with regard to the Lord's return that is in view. Some that were thinking their loved ones were not going to take part because they had died. They wouldn't be present at the parousia and therefore they wouldn't enter into that earthly manifestation of Christ's kingdom. And Paul gives the correction to that in chapter 4 and the opening of chapter 5 as we've seen. And so it may be a a timidity that was based on that. It could just simply be the general prospect or the general tenor of life of being timid and fearful. I think often, and we see in other scriptures to be sure, and certainly we see it in our experience, that one common struggle and problem among the Lord's people is a lack of assurance. And of course we know that 
encouragement in those fears comes best by knowledge of coming to a deeper understanding of the person and work of Christ, of growing in grace, that text we quote nearly every Sabbath, growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here, these that are timid for perhaps a variety of reasons. And can I just underscore a thought here? Going a little bit further than Paul takes it in this phrase, but to be timid, it's close to to being fearful. And fear, fear, dear friends, can be the root of many errors. And it can be the root of many sins. I say to people often in counseling different situations, There's a little Romanist inside of all of us. Well, there's a little Arminian inside of all of us too that constantly needs the correction of the gospel. But we have the tendency, I was supposed to say part of this earlier in the message. (laughs) It would be nice to come together. But we have the tendency when we look at problems and often spiritual problems that we want to meet a spiritual problem with a change of methodology. And often, it isn't a change of methodology. We don't need to do something different. We need to be something different. Well, so it can be with our fears. We will have a fear that something's going to happen. And we need to do something to fix it. Do something to prevent it. Think about it. There's a word in church history called Jesuitry. It was a word obviously connected to Romanism because of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, that are described historically with the motto, as it were, the end justifies the means. We think these reformers' views are heretical. We'll threaten their lives. We'll murder them in order to get them to recant. And one of a thousand examples. Well, fear can lead us to do things that shouldn't be done in order to ward off this other problem. How often can it be that whether it's in a personal level or our interaction with one another is this description. That encouragement is what's needed to be given to the timid or the fearful. Sometimes we need to encourage ourselves in the Lord instead of forgetting about the Lord and doing something ourselves to fix the problem or the problem in the other person. Encourage the timid. Often those that don't wrestle with fear, it's not a tendency 
have difficulty understanding the fearful or the timid. And they can deal more harshly with them than they should be dealt with. You should be like me. You shouldn't have that problem. Encourage the timid. Take grace to the needy. The last phrase he uses with regard to the fellowship is support the weak. Support the weak. It has the idea here, almost literally, support. Like the supports of a structure. Hold them up. Put your arms around them. And here, most commentators understand. I mean, we can look at this, support the weak, that sounds good. But most understand this in the context of weakness, meaning tendencies to sin. Paul gave admonishment in the opening part of chapter 4 with regard to sanctification, with regard to personal purity in an impure world. And many believe that this admonition of supporting the weak here is people coming alongside, helping those that have weakness and tendencies to sin. Again, bringing gospel admonitions. You bring a self-righteous admonition to somebody struggling with sin and you're not going to help anything. You're not going to help them get over their need and their problem and you're not going to help yourself understand your own struggles with sin. You don't bring, do it like me, I got a handle on it, you will never, or you, you got to get like me to get a grip. Bring a gospel admonition. These are battles, this is warfare that all fallen creatures, even redeemed creatures, struggle with the old nature. Here, hold them up. Put your arms around them. Help one another in gospel ways. This is the admonitions. These are the admonitions with regard to the fellowship. And notice what he says after this description of these three common categories of struggle and believers within the church then he just says be patient toward all you have the italicized men there I don't think it's a a bad translation but if you just leave it off and you have patient toward all harking back to all three of these categories of struggle patience in the midst of warning or encouraging or supporting I already warned you. And now I don't have patience anymore. I already supported you. I don't have patience anymore. No, patience toward all. See verse 15 and hear what gospel words. See that none render evil for evil unto any man. That's the flesh. Answer sin with sin. Take it to the earliest days of life. You hit your sibling. They hit me first. Oh, so if somebody hits you, you have permission to hit them. Somebody sin against you, you got a free pass to sin against them. The flesh goes there very quickly. See that none render evil for evil. What did Paul tell the Corinthians in that whole section about lawsuits. And I think the phrase there 
applies far beyond lawsuits. Why do you not rather suffer wrong? What's your view of your God and of your Savior? What's your view of the Lord's people? If you want to put out there for everybody, those even outside the church to have on display, why don't you rather suffer wrong than do that? But again, that's not a natural fleshly response. That's only going to be a spiritual response. But see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all. Again, these admonitions, how their impact is going to be felt not only in the church, in the fellowship, but outside. Part of providing those things honest in the sight of all men. Leadership, fellowship, and lastly, Worship. And I see our time. This will have to be the 60,000 foot overview instead of 30,000 feet. But I remember this section because one of my years at youth camp, different themes each year, and Bible memory was part of the week. You got points for your team for memorizing verses. And you had to memorize them in blocks if memory serves me correctly, blocks of 11 verses. Why they chose 11 instead of 10, I don't know, but I think it was 11. Well, one year we were doing First Thessalonians, and man, if you put in all your spare time during the week, you might could get all of Thessalonians memorized and quoted 11 verses at a time to your counselor. This was a happy section. Look how short these verses are. I mean, this one... Whew, Flying along. But here, it is evident that the things that are given here certainly can apply in personal life. They can touch the individual. And that might be an interesting thought process through this part of the chapter. Leadership, the whole body, and then you as an individual. But I think though, if you look at this last section... It isn't the individual and graces that are encouraged here. It's corporate. Because when you get down to despise not prophesying, well, that's kind of hard if, if it's an individual thing. Well, I'm setting this forth. I'm, I'm talking about this particular thing. I despise myself. Now, that's a corporate admonition. And if you look, all of these are corporate Rejoice evermore. Have you ever had the experience of coming to the house of God with things weighing you down? Problems? Circumstances? Where is this bill going to get paid from? Sickness? Whatever? Or just a lack of, of joy? And you gather with the Lord's people. And you sing something like, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. And you're taken up with that as you come together, come alongside the brethren. Joy is to be part of corporate worship. And where joy is lacking, I think there are 
seasons corporately as well as there are seasons individually. But if joy is lacking, then something's wrong. Because the gospel brings joy even to a sin-cursed earth and a sin-cursed people because it's the good news of an answer to all of the problems. And so rejoice evermore. Paul's example is clear, but here Paul is preaching to the choir because he said in chapter 1 that they received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. What a precious truth. Corporate expression. Pray without ceasing. If joy is to be part of the corporate body and the corporate assembly, prayer. Prayer being part. Corporate prayer. I remember when I was a youth in Bible-believing, good churches, dear people, Bible college, faithful men coming to preach. But I remember when I was introduced to the free church and to the Reformed faith, there was a difference in the praying. Prayer was, well, here's one of those pendulum swings in church history. Should we have liturgical written prayers? Boy, you can, you can be a preacher and you just pull one out of the file and read it that morning. And nobody on heaven or earth is blessed at all. We need extemporaneous praying. Something real. And extemporaneous prayer can come to be mindless, thoughtless, might be flowing and just empty and dead. It's again one of those things, method isn't going to fix a spiritual problem. It's a spiritual problem. But prayer. Just like communication is vital in any earthly relationship for there to be a healthy relationship, prayer. We come to God because we believe that He is. Prayer is going to express our understanding, our experience of knowing He's there. Maybe better said with an omnipresent infinite being, He's here. And prayer is part of our personal and corporate experience that we recognize Him. And all the aspects of prayer, of course, we see in other Scriptures. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Wow. Here's an interesting little shorthand list of what should be part of corporate worship. Joy. Prayer, thanksgiving. And it doesn't say occasionally. It doesn't say when things are going the way we think they should go. And everything, give thanks. What is Romans 8.28? We come to, Lord willing, in a few weeks. All things 
work together for good. If we believe and follow a sovereign, good God, one who has not dealt with us according to our iniquities, but has dealt with us in Christ, thankful in all things. Remember Dr. Allison is with the Lord now. One of his life catchphrases, is that a good way to say it? Was a prayer that I can pray every day, I can pray in any circumstance. Lord, I thank you that I'm not in hell today. Because that's where I deserve to be. And everything give thanks. You read Acts. You see something of the history in Thessalonica. The unbelieving Jews spinning tales to the civil authorities trying to get believers in trouble. And everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quickly, quench, verse 19, quench not the Spirit. It's interesting, the times in Scripture which the Spirit is compared to fire. Don't quench the Spirit. I have been taken, thankfully not often, I can't say in a brief ministry anymore, but in a small work, we've had happy experience here. But I've known it here, I've known it in other works as well. The, the real possibility of quenching the Spirit. And sometimes things unknown to almost everyone, but yet some impact, even among the Lord's people, because of one quenching the Spirit. Make it a prayer. Lord, never, never let me Quench your Holy Spirit in the gatherings of your people. This is one of those categories we teach in theology. One of the things you have to work through in theology proper is the personality of God the Holy Spirit. Here, quenching the Spirit, you might take that in a less than personal way, but yet it is personal. But then in Ephesians, we have the phrase, grieve not the Spirit. That is an eminently personal thing. And so here, Paul again in this rapid fire instruction with regard to their gatherings and their worship, quench not the Spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Most understand here that it's not the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit, the charismata that are in view. The Thessalonians, some of them were really taken up with eschatology. And it may have bred in the spirit of some of the others a little bit of distaste for eschatology. And so he admonishes them, don't despise prophesying. Yeah, it can't be the whole diet of any church, but don't cast it aside. I wonder if that's going on a little bit in the modern church. 
20th century was so out there with eschatology. How many predictions came and went and all the above. And now it's like, and I appreciate our charity. I appreciate the hard questions in areas where we need at times even to agree to disagree. But I wonder sometimes if some just come to the point where so many crackpots on that, I'm just going to leave all of it alone. Love his appearing. That's how Paul describes it. We read Wednesday night, wasn't it? 2 Timothy 4. And then, again, even more rapid fire. Prove all things. Test. Test all things. Hold fast that which is good. Reminds me of my father-in-law's phraseology with regard to reading Christian books. Sometimes you have to read people you don't maybe agree with everything they say. I'm not talking about apostates and liberals. I'm talking about even evangelicals. Well, there's the chew and spit method. Chew it all up, spit out the bad. Well, test everything. Hold fast that which is good. My father-in-law wasn't a negative person at all, but I guess he took the negative side of that. Spit out the bad. Well, Paul's giving you the positive side. Hold on to the good. And here, abstain from all appearance of evil. Well, I have time to wrestle through, but the way that's phrased in the authorized version, you could almost take the appearance of evil as something beyond just evil itself, but it seems here that it's not appearances that are in view, but it's all kinds of evil. Every expression, every place where evil manifests itself. Don't entertain any of it. Abstain from it all. And he speaks here of the God of peace, sanctifying them wholly. We should add here, this is a phrase often trichotomists come to. We don't have time to go through that debate, but let's just suffice it to say, I don't think this scripture, much less some other scriptures, would get us into quadricotomy and all the other. If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask me later. But here, the God of peace sanctifying them wholly. Their whole being, they'd be growing in grace, sanctified, set apart for God. The faithfulness of God, Him that calls us, who's also going to do it in our lives. And then he says, the greeting, the love that is expressed. But I just want to get to verse 27 and we close. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The closing out of this greeting, the closing out of this section on basic church life, if you will, casts emphasis upon Scripture. The New Testament churches had taken up the practice the worthy, good practice of the synagogues of reading, regular readings from the Old Testament Scriptures here. The apostolic inspired writings are put on that par. I charge you, Paul says, this isn't just optional, I charge you, read this epistle before all the holy brethren. Public reading. What does Paul tell Timothy? Give attendance to reading. The place of the Word in the normal life of the 
church. Well, we've gone too long. Somebody said maybe we should have had a 90,000 foot overview today, but here, basic church life, leadership, fellowship, worship. Let us hear and happily heed this that was to be read to the Thessalonians and is read to us. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come with grateful hearts and ask today in these many things that, Lord, thoughts that could be pursued at greater length, but that you will draw near and minister to us corporately and individually. With regard to leadership, regard to fellowship, with regard to worship. And make us, as the Thessalonians, a joyful people. Joy independent of circumstances, because we know the one who is the end and the beginning. Bless your word to us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Thank you.